0: morning, brothers and sisters. I couldn't help but notice the giraffe in the uh, video there. Does anybody have a giraffe? I mean, is that on the list, Amy, if we can borrow somebody's giraffe? Okay, might be, might be good. So if you get the PowerPoint up. Um, I didn't want to create false expectations for the kids coming that we're going to have a giraffe at the VBS. So. Also, you know, I was... Uh, at the the last song that we sang together in worship this morning, Blessed Be Your Name, and I, I looked out and I saw all of my brothers and sisters here, and I can see and I know what you go through, and I know the pain and suffering that some of you are having, or if it's not pain and suffering, it's a challenge. But to see you out there with your hands raised and your eyes closed and just like Job saying, The Lord gives and the Lord takes away, But blessed be the name of the Lord. That just blesses me. It blesses me that we can be together and proclaim God's goodness in the midst of the things that we experience. I have to tell you that I resisted doing this morning's message. It's not that I didn't want to preach this morning. It's more like I wasn't very excited to preach about what I believe clearly that the Lord wanted me to preach about this morning. After all, what did we just experience together A powerful week last week, Holy Week. We had the very sober and reflective ponderings about the cost of our salvation when we shared the Lord's Supper together on Maundy Thursday, and then on Good Friday we considered the cross of Christ. And then we remembered in Jim Grinnell's great Easter message last Sunday the victory of the resurrection of Jesus and what that earned for us. It earned us victory over death. It was our salvation. That's why it's called the Good News the Gospel. Amen? So after that winning note with victory over sin and death in our minds and our hearts, why would the Lord want me to, right on the heels of that, bring again another sobering message, this time about hell. Jim gets to bring the good news and I get to bring the bad. How fair is that? A book on hell I read a few years ago begins with this line. If you are excited to read about this book, you have issues. (laughs) So I may have other issues. You'll have to ask Barb about that. But I can tell you I am not excited to bring this message today. Yet nevertheless, here's the thing. The only reason that Jesus' victory over sin and death through the cross and the resurrection is good news at all is because of the bad news of hell. If there is no hell, as many believe, or if there is a hell but it's reserved only for the devil and his minions, as others believe, or if there is a hell but virtually no one will go there for any reason, then why would the death and resurrection of Jesus be such good news? The Bible talks about us being saved. We talk about being saved. But saved from what? Along with many of the other biblical truths that our culture is abandoning, and running from in these days that we live in, hell is right up there with those beliefs that many people have no use for anymore. We've talked before from this pulpit about the radical autonomy that describes our culture. I'll do whatever makes me feel good, whatever I want to do, whatever I want to be even, as long as it makes me feel good about myself, Even many Christians want to downplay God's condemnation of sin, especially sexual sin, especially everything about feelings. Everything, have you noticed that? Everything today is about feelings. So even some who call themselves Christians want to embrace universalism. We'll look at that idea here in a minute. Buying in to this false doctrine allows them to tell the culture exactly what they want to believe in. God is a cosmic grandfather who never finally holds anyone responsible for their rebellion against Him. As we've mentioned, we've seen this especially with sexual and gender issues, which are always an easy target, but we can certainly find many other examples. We don't have to stop there. For example, our society's materialism, our quest for comfort above all else the constant state of outrage we see in our cultural discourse. We want to feel good about who we are and what we do and what we say and even what we think. And we want everyone else to affirm those good feelings. Life's about feeling good and not being troubled by any reality that might be difficult or even painful. That's the quest of our culture today. Now Karl Marx famously wrote that religion is the opiate of the masses. He didn't mean that positively as far as we're concerned. By that he meant that religion served a function in society just like opium. Opium's a drug that's a product of the poppy seed from which today we get otherwise useful opioid painkiller medicines that have led to so many addiction issues. He said this to mock religion in general. That was his purpose. But opium made people feel better. It masked the pain and discomfort that they felt, emotional or physical. I recently read an interview with a theologian who wrote a very thorough history of universalism. He was lamenting a trend around some modern theologians, and he turned Marx's phrase around, and he called universalism the opiate of the theologians. Universalism in its many forms, assumes that one way or another, and there's different stripes of universalism, but one way or another, everyone goes to heaven and no one goes to hell. So if everyone goes to heaven, if there is no hell at all, that makes people feel good. It gives them license to live however they want to live and to reject the gospel of Jesus Christ. Why do we need Jesus if there is no hell? We also don't need Jesus if there is a hell, but no one goes there, regardless of their faith or their lack of faith in him. So universalism, or the belief that there is no hell at all, today is an opiate of the masses. But like an opiate, the belief that there's no hell or that, everyone, or that no one goes there has terrible consequences. Back when Marx wrote this phrase, opium was used recreationally to make people high to give them a buzz. Of course, it still is today, though medicine has developed legitimate uses for this as well. When you're high on opium, there's a euphoria. You feel good. Bad things don't look so bad, or if they do, you don't care. But when you're not using it, reality comes crashing in. Even the legal uses of the opium derivatives, like oxycodone and morphine, Uh, They have legitimate uses as painkillers. Some of our people in here have used them in the last few weeks, and they're probably glad that we had them. But they only temporarily mask the pain. Without them, you're still in pain. And if you continue to use them after they're no longer needed for pain relief, you can get addicted to how they make you feel. You've got to have them. And then overcoming the addiction and its related consequences is painful, too. So, related to our line of thinking here this morning, hanging on to the belief that there is no hell or that no one goes there is an opiate. It might make you feel better, but eventually it will come back to bite you. John Stone Street, anybody know John Stone Street? He writes and speaks of the breakpoint commentaries that are on the radio, and I get the newsletter that sends those out every uh, day, weekday. He said this. If your God never tells you to do anything you don't want to do, your God is probably you. I love that. If there were an Americanized translation of the Apostles' Creed for today, it would be something like this. I believe in God the Father Almighty who always supports my feelings. Now I'd paraphrase that for our purposes this morning by saying if your God never tells you anything you don't like to hear, Your God is probably you. Eventually, we must all face the bad news before we can embrace the good news. Jesus said in his story of the separation of the sheep and the goats in Matthew 25, and these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. So eternal punishment, folks, that's what hell is. That's bad news, and it's something that should be feared. If we believe in hell and we don't fear it, there's really something wrong. A few chapters earlier, Jesus said, and do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. We often worry about our physical safety in this life, But Jesus said there's something way more important to be concerned about, even to fear, and that's hell. Also in Matthew, Jesus told the parable of the seed and the sower, and near the end of that parable, he said this, just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 9 tells us that this fiery furnace, this eternal punishment, will be away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. There will one day be a separation. There will be a judgment. It's definitely something to fear apart from Jesus' sacrifice, purchasing our forgiveness. So if we allow ourselves to indulge in this opiate of unbelief in that eternal judgment, it might make us feel better for a while, but it will not last. Because of that judgment, that judgment will come, and it will be eternal. And eternal is a very long time. And all by itself, that is indeed bad news, the worst possible news that we could hear. But Jesus, and all we remembered and celebrated last week during Holy Week, turns the bad news, the worst possible news there is, into the best possible news that there is. Now, uh, Michael McClymond is the author, the uh, theologian I mentioned a moment ago. He wrote a book called The Devil's Redemption, A New History and Interpretation of Christian Universalism. He did an interview recently with Christianity Today and he said that those who teach Universalism, they believe that the idea of eternal punishment is unethical. They believe that it implies an unworthy conception of God and that there are different ways to read the Bible. On the other hand, he notes that there would be no reason to believe in God, there'd be no reason to repent of sin, to struggle to obey God or engage in evangelism if universalism was true or if there was no hell. So in this way of thinking about it, we can see that the belief in the reality of hell and its purpose in Scripture is critical not just for our salvation. It is, but it's critical for the way we live our lives in Christ. Through the centuries, the overwhelming majority of Christians have believed that some people will finally be saved and live forever with God, while others will be finally lost and separated from God in hell. So just like an opiate, believing that there's no hell or that no one goes there seems like a comfortable belief. It's the spiritual equivalent of comfort food. It just feels good, right? Chicken fried chicken, right? Doesn't that just feel good? But it's a false sense of security. It has eternal consequences. Our culture has made and is even now making really horrible mistakes by elevating feelings to the level of beliefs or convictions and then setting policies or making laws to reflect those feelings. True or false cannot be uh, described by decided by people's feelings. True and false can't be decided by what we feel. Let's face it, the world that we live in is really not as we wish it would be. Anybody say, hey, I like the world just as it is and wouldn't make any changes? Of course not, right? We can't rebuild the world by imagining or hoping or feeling. It should be different. McClymouth called this utopian imaginings. For a lot of people outside Christ, the question is this. For those who don't believe, here's the question How could anyone ever so offend God to such a drastic degree that they would end up eternally punished in hell? This idea seems inconceivable to those apart from Christ. Isn't God overreacting? A lie? Or cheating on your wife? Or taking some office supplies? Or gossiping? Or any sin, big or small, dooming you to punishment for all time? But the Church of Jesus Christ has always believed and taught about human nature from a completely different perspective. Rather than ask, how could God possibly punish anyone eternally? We change the question to, how could God save anyone from eternal punishment? You know, everyone has already offended God. Romans 3.23 is the a-verse in Bible Bowl. All have sinned. Romans 6.23 tells us there is no one righteous. The Bible has a lot of very sobering things to say about us as human beings. Romans 5.10 says we are enemies of God apart from Christ. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 3 says that, again, apart from Christ, we were by nature children of wrath. In other words, we deserve, we deserve God's wrath, all of us. The argument for there being no hell or for the eventual salvation of all from hell starts with something that we all believe in, something we could all embrace. Everybody here this morning, the love of God, the love of God for us. Scripture teaches it. We as Christians believe it. But the argument for no hell makes God's love like the world's idea of love. Squishy, purely emotional. And when his love, not properly understood, but seen as the world sees love, becomes the sum total of God's being and his character, it's easy to see how people can leap to the conclusion of eternal salvation for all. But here's the problem. That line of thinking, seeing love as the world sees love, ignores a lot of the messy part in between. Yes, God is love. Scripture declares that. But how about some of the other things that we read in Scripture? How about the incarnation, God becoming flesh and living among us? How about his atoning death? How about his suffering that was part of that? And the word's clear explanation of why these things are absolutely necessary for our salvation. So, yes, Scripture does tell us that God is love, but Scripture also tells us that God is holy. Scripture also tells us that God is just. Scripture also tells us that God hates sin. He hates it so much that He can't even look upon it. We read in Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 13, you who are of purer eyes than to see evil, and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? Well, of course, the reality is that God does not idly look at traitors. He does not remain silent when the wicked sin against the righteous. Hell is one of God's answers to this. Those who do not believe in hell essentially start with the idea that God is love And so because of that, because that's his total being, the sum total of his being, everyone must be saved. But they never go beyond that. That idea denies so much of so many other truths that we see in Scripture, including some of the ones we've already reviewed. Now, here's another reality. Jesus, everybody likes Jesus. He was a good guy. He was a great moral teacher, right? Everybody likes Jesus. But Jesus is the one who spoke most often and most descriptively than anyone else about hell. He spoke of it as a real place. It wasn't a metaphor for Jesus. The graphic terms with which Jesus described hell include a fire that burns but doesn't consume, an undying worm that eats away at the damned, a lonely and foreboding darkness, A place where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. You don't weep or gnash your teeth if you're comfortable. A place marked by a chasm, a wide separation from heaven, and it can't be crossed. It's a place of conscious suffering. These are things Jesus said about hell, where those who are there remember their lives and beg for relief and have no hope. Dorothy Sayers was a contemporary and friend of C.S. Lewis. And she wrote this, there seems to be a kind of conspiracy to forget or to conceal where the doctrine of hell comes from. The doctrine of hell is not medieval priestcraft for frightening people into giving money to the church. It is Christ's deliberate judgment on sin. We cannot repudiate hell without altogether repudiating Jesus Christ. So just as you can't love Jesus, Without loving the church, I've heard people say that. I love Jesus, I just don't love the church. You can't love Jesus without loving the church. You also cannot love Jesus and accept him as your Lord without accepting the fact that he taught about and believed in a literal hell. Despite how offensive this doctrine feels to us, it's not a fringe topic in the Word of God. It is at the very center of the warnings of Jesus and the Apostles we might wish there were no hell. If we do, we probably have the idea that we wish this because we're so kind and compassionate and we don't want people to suffer. Well, of course we don't wish suffering on people, right? But God, in his sovereign wisdom and in his holiness and in his justice, has created hell. Do we have more confidence in our kindness and our compassion than his? We think we love people too much to want them to suffer, but that idea implies that somehow, does God love them less than we do? People, maybe we hate hell too much because we don't hate evil. We don't hate sin enough. If we regard hell as a divine overreaction to sin, we deny that God has the moral right to inflict ongoing punishment on any human's. By denying hell, we deny the extent of God's holiness. When we minimize sin's seriousness, we minimize God's grace in Christ's blood shed for us. For if the evils he died for aren't significant enough to warrant eternal punishment, perhaps the grace displayed on the cross isn't significant enough to warrant eternal praise. There's a really ironic consequence of universalism or the lack of a belief in hell. It completely undermines and obliterates grace or the need of it. Think about this. Remember we talked about how people who don't believe in hell because God is love and that's the sum total of who he is. What seems to be a graceful position to hold, no hell for anyone, actually turns out to be no grace at all. The wonder of God's grace, the amazing part of it, is that he saved a wretch like me and that I didn't deserve it. That's what grace is, right? Grace is amazing and wonderful because it was necessary to save you and to save me. Grace is demonstrated in the incarnation. It's demonstrated in the suffering of Christ. It's demonstrated in his death on the cross. Think about this. In our understanding of the word of God, his grace depends on his will toward us. His plan to redeem us. It's part of, but not made necessary by His nature, which includes the idea that He is love. It's a decision that He made. And it's a decision He did not have to make. That's grace. And that's true love. Not allowing sin to go unpunished, but taking on that sin for us on the cross of Christ. But if God is love, and of course He is, but if that's the sum total of His essence because he is not also holy and just, and sin is not as awful an offense against the holy God as the Word teaches us, then his grace is not necessary to rescue us from our sin and eternal punishment. You don't need grace for that. He's love. His grace is not required for our salvation, which means it's not so amazing. It's not so amazing if we haven't offended his holiness. It's not so amazing if there is no hell or if no one goes there. So we see that hell is a hard doctrine. We can admit that, right? This is a hard doctrine. But it's spoken of clearly in Scripture as truth. But though it is a negative, though it is hard, it's meant to be used positively. What are we to do with this doctrine? We tend to ignore it. But how should it impact the life of a believer in Christ who takes God's word with all seriousness? Well, for one thing, it should compel us to fight against sin. Sin always brings misery. If we nurture sin in our lives and don't seek to put it to death, as Scripture encourages us to do, it can grow into a kind of hell in this life. A sin-filled life, is life with all the best parts sucked right out of it. Jesus warned that even very religious people can go to hell. So we who are in Christ know about sin and judgment. The reality of hell should cause us to take sin every bit as seriously as God did. He took it so seriously that it required the cross of Christ to defeat sin. Secondly, the doctrine of hell should help complete and enrich our full understanding of a holy God. The very fact that the idea of hell shocks us tells us something very important. God is a whole lot less tolerant of evil than we are. So the reality of hell should compel us to fight against sin, to complete and enrich our full understanding of God. Precisely because of our aversion to the notion of sustained condemnation we can better appreciate God's plan to create an eternity in which beauty and peace is inside and dark arts, sexual perversion, murder, self-worship, and untruth are kept outside. Hell assures us that God is dead serious about sin. True to his hatred of everything that detracts from human and cosmic flourishing, God will one day make new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Praise be to God. A third thing that hell does for the believer is it deepens our love for Jesus. Just last week during Holy Week, we recalled seriously and at length many aspects of what Jesus accomplished for us in his suffering and death on the cross. We know from Scripture that when we are saved, it means we are saved from hell. That's what it means to be saved. We are saved only through Jesus' sacrifice, and nothing we can do can eradicate sin from our souls at all unless we have the blood of Jesus applied, apart from Jesus' blood. What are we saying? What can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Yes, of course, the grace of God in Christ makes a difference in this life. I don't mean to imply that But praise be to God, Jesus' willing sacrifice on the cross rescued me. He saved us from eternal death. He saved us from the anguish and eternal torment of hell that my sins so richly deserve. Speaking of feelings, Jesus knows from personal experience what separation from God the Father feels like. He spoke on the cross, what? My God, why have you forsaken me in that moment in some way what I don't think we can fully grasp and understand with our finite sin-veiled minds but God the Father turned his face away from God the Son because he had taken our sin on himself. The unbroken fellowship that God the Father and God the Son had known from eternity past was broken. We don't know how long It was broken on the cross. Scripture doesn't really tell us that. But it was broken, at least temporarily. And since hell is described, among other things, as separation from God, Jesus knows what that feels like. And he endured not just the physical suffering. We focus on that, and that's a good thing to focus on. It's an appropriate thing. But that wasn't the main suffering that Jesus experienced. But he took on my sin for me. He took on your sin among the many things that the doctrine of hell means, among other things, is that for those of us in Christ, we must warn others. That's what evangelism is about. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 11 says, Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, and if you've heard about hell this morning and you don't fear that, then again, something's wrong with you. But it says, therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. We persuade others. We read in Jude chapter 1 verse 23, save others by snatching them out of the fire to show to others show mercy with fear hating even the garments stained by the flesh. We can participate. My brothers and sisters, we can participate with God's holy spirit in snatching people out of the fire of hell. We have the privilege of persuading others. Charles Spurgeon said, If sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our bodies. And if they perish, let them perish with our arms about their knees, imploring them to stay and not madly to destroy themselves. If hell must be filled, at least let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions. And let not one go there unwarned and unprayed for. Let not one go there unwarned and unprayed for." Now, think about this for a second. I'm not saying we must lead with this doctrine as we share Christ with others. Now, there may be situations that occurs to me where the doctrine of hell might be near the beginning of our communication with unbelievers, and that might be completely appropriate. But I would also say that much of the time, there are more winsome and effective ways to begin to lead someone to Christ. And that's why the guy standing out on the street corner says you're bound for hell and carrying the sign is probably not the most effective way to get people's attention.